Now, The Interpreter Show, with discussion, debate, and the latest information on all kinds of religious issues and topics. This is The Interpreter Radio Show, brought to you by The Interpreter Foundation. The mission of the Interpreter Foundation is to support the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints through scholarship. It provides accurate information to the public about the Church and makes available free to everyone on the Internet scholarship on a wide variety of subjects at interpreterfoundation.org. The Interpreter Foundation defends the Church against misunderstandings and criticisms. The Interpreter Foundation is not owned, controlled, or affiliated with the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the material it publishes, and... That which is heard on this radio show is the sole responsibility of the authors and the foundation. The Interpreter Radio Show is sponsored by Kimber Academy. Kimber Academy is a K-12 private school, which, unlike public schools, keeps God in the classroom. Kimber Academy is a special place where teachers guide students toward faith, morality, with quality, engaging curriculum. At Kimber Academy, every parent's voice is heard. In Utah... Kimber Academy is located in Linden. There are many other locations throughout the United States. To find out more or schedule a tour, call the director, Jessica Bianco, at 801-382-7158 or go to KimberSchool.com. That's KimberSchool.com. I'm Steve Densley, and tonight I'm joined in the studio by co-host John Thompson. Hey Hello, there. John. Hey. <laughs> it's nice to have you here. So, John, tonight we're going to talk about 2 Nephi, chapters 6 through 10. And you've written somewhat about this. Uh, Why don't you uh, tell our audience uh, what you've written and where they can find it? Okay. Um, Yeah, let me just quick little background to this section of um, the Book of Mormon. I think up until about, what, 2 Nephi chapter 6, um, uh, so everything up including 2 Nephi 5, uh, Nephi's record has kind of largely followed like a 30-year historical narrative, beginning in Jerusalem with Lehi, and then ending with the Nephites and the Lamanites parting ways in 2 Nephi 5. And as you know, in that chapter, uh, Nephi uh, establishes his own kingdom. He's... uh, teaching his people to build, and they build a temple, um, and he uh, prepares them, you know, to defend themselves, etc. Um, and then, um, and then suddenly we kind of get a break in the sense that from that point on, we don't get any more uh, historical or narrative context to any of the, whatever, the rest of what uh, Nephi writes in his record. So from chapters 6 through 33 of 2 Nephi, um, no, no context. All he does is give us um, the words of his brother Jacob's sermon, um, a sermon that he gave, and it seems to have lasted for at least two days. Um, not that he was speaking the whole time, but, uh, but he picked up you know, and continued his, his sermon on the second day. Um, and then Jacob records a whole bunch of the words of Isaiah. And then... Um, Sorry, Nephi does. And then Nephi concludes his record by giving his own sweeping prophecy um, and some doctrinal understanding as he closes out uh, the record. So those 
those three texts, the texts of Jacob, Isaiah, and Nephi's own words kind of conclude his record, but again, there's no um, historical or narrative context um, to tell us why these uh, sermons are being given. Um, but even though there is no context like that, um, I think there are clues within the sermon of Jacob particularly um, that can provide some insight um, into a possible setting uh, in which this sermon may have been given. And so this is kind of the, the essence of the paper I wrote a long time ago. It was uh, one of the chapters in the Farms volume on Isaiah and the Book of Mormon. And I had the passages in Second Nephi uh, 6 through 10, you know, that sermon, which Jacob quotes a couple of chapters of Isaiah in. And, um, and so I, I wrote this paper uh, to demonstrate that this particular sermon of Jacob's has a structure, and the structure seems to follow um, a pattern uh, of making covenants or entering into treaties in the ancient world. And this was this was a big thing that was going on in biblical studies many years ago. You know, these covenant treaty patterns that were discovered um, in some of the archaeological uh, texts that were being found. And then people were looking at the Bible to say, well, look, the same kind of structure shows up when God's making covenants with his people. Um, and so then that kind of got people interested to see if it happens to be in the Book of Mormon. And sure enough, um, it was found um, in the Book of Mormon. I think the first instance where it was kind of mentioned was with King Benjamin's speech uh, that seems to follow that pattern. And, um, and then um, I published this paper to show that Jacob's speech also followed that same pattern. And um, so because of this structure and the fact that the sermon takes place over two days at least, um, that suggests that, there's, that this sermon was likely given during some multi-day gathering uh, for renewing covenants, because it is a covenant-structured text. Um, and, um, and so something like that was done annually uh, during the Israelite Autumn Festival uh, period. And so it, it could very well be that Jacob gave this sermon during the time period of the, you know, the New Year, Day of Atonement, and Feast of Tabernacles, which were kind of all close enough in the calendar that they all kind of got celebrated together, similar to the way we kind of lump Thanksgiving and Christmas together, you know, as kind of a holiday season. Um, and, um, and then the themes that are discussed in Jacob's sermon, uh, such as creation and judgment and the kingship of Jehovah and knowing God's name, uh, all of these themes provide even further support uh, for the conclusion that this was probably a covenant renewal speech that Jacob is giving Again, more than likely, those kinds of things would happen during the autumn festivals. And, um, and so that was, yeah, that's the main thrust of the paper. And we can kind of get into some of the details of that in a minute. And, and then I'll just add that another paper just came out, what, a week or two ago on Interpreter uh, Journal, uh, written by Scotter Smith, um, called The Heavenly Ascent in Jacob's Writings in Second Nephi. And he's looking at this, these same chapters and and, and um, building upon, um, you know, my paper and others that have written on Second Nephi, he, he kind of argues that, that the, the sermon of Jacob is, is kind of taking you on a heavenly ascent. Um, you know, the idea that, you're, that we're moving towards a redemption story um, at the end. 
And um, I really liked what Scotter did. I think it was a really well um, written paper as he kind of gives the background of what heavenly ascent um, concepts are in biblical studies and how that might apply to the Book of Mormon in this particular chapter, these particular chapters. So anyway, just want to recommend that one too. Well, that, that's a, uh, a really good overview and, and, and interesting too to identify signals that may suggest that this was given as part of a festival um, and, you know, had a, uh, a, you know, a sort of a ritual covenant-making context that um, existed in the ancient world. You know, these are the kinds of things that, uh, you know, help us to appreciate the, uh, the Book of Mormon as history, as something that actually happened to real people in time and in a place. And um, so I, I love that. And um, maybe you could uh, give us um, an overview of the, uh, the, uh, the covenant-making formula. There, there, are, there, there are six different parts of this, right? Yeah. Yeah, so usually it kind of starts off with some kind of a preamble um, where uh, the, the parties that are going to be involved in this covenant are kind of mentioned by name. Um, so you, you get either names or you get a titulary where you get uh, the titles or, um, or, you know, some kind of, you know, epithet kind of mentioning the, the king. If, the, if there's a king who's involved in this uh, covenant, you know, what, what kinds of, um, you know, again, titles that he might have. Um, and, um, and so you see that, for example, in the early chapters of well, the very early verses of well, this section. Are we, are we seeing that, you know, in verse 2, where he says, having been called of God and ordained after the manner of his holy order and having been consecrated by my brother Nephi. Uh, is that yep. an example? Of, exactly. Okay. Yeah, so he's, he's trying to lay out the number one, that he has authority, right, to oversee this covenant uh, ceremony that he might be kind of officiating at and that he has been appointed by Nephi, who he says you've, you look to as your king and protector. Um, and so he is kind of laying out that, uh, you know, that the title and, and authority that he has. Um, so that's usually how they kind of start. And then, and then you kind of get into what would, would be considered like the meat or the, the main part of the, uh, a sermon or a covenant. And what they typically will do next in the pattern is um, they will do a historical overview. They'll kind of review what great things... Uh, if it's a king entering into a covenant with some people, or again, two kings entering into a treaty, um, usually there's one king who's like, has won the war, right? And so they're now entering into this treaty of peace, and the king who is, has the upper hand is going to talk about his greatness, his power, his authority, but also his benevolence, and the idea that he has, um, you know, has shown mercy to people who enter into treaties uh, with, with him, and uh, and so this part of uh, Jacob's sermon kind of begins, um, I think, in 2 Nephi chapter 6, starting around verse 5. How about verse 4, where he says, I would speak unto you concerning the things which are and which are to come. Yeah. Yeah. Is, is that, yeah. is that t- tipping us off that this is getting into the historical overview? Yeah. As a matter of fact, he, if you back up before that, he says, I have been talking to you about uh, all the things that have been written since the creation, right? So he's... He's kind of help reminding them that we've talked a lot about the past, about the scriptures, what God has done, again, among his people of the past. And, um, 
And now I'm going to talk to you about the present and the future. Um, and so he's kind of he's kind of twisting this a little bit because in the ancient world, again, it was mostly about history. What 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 things has this king done that you should trust him to enter into a covenant relationship with this king? Um, Jacob is saying, okay, I've done that already. Now let's talk about what he's going to do in the future and let that be also a, a reason to soften your heart and to enter into a covenant relationship with him. And so he, he outlines, um, you know, from chapter 6, verse 5, all the way through chapter 9, verse 22, um, he, he talks about the might and power of God, and, and, he, and this is when he quotes the Isaiah chapters, and in these chapters, God is overcoming monsters, right? The, um, let me see if I can pull up the passages in particular. Rahab and the dragon? Yeah, and, um, and that, that God is mighty to overcome all these things, and even, even when God seems to have been made low, right, that he gave his back to the smiters, Yet he still prevails. He, he sets his face like flint. And so when they're smiting him on the cheek, right, he's, he's not flinching and, um, because he's a mighty God who's going to deliver the people. And so even when you think he's uh, been overcome or overpowered, you know, just watch because he's not. He's, he's going to prevail. Um, and so you get those kinds of things. And then, of course, in 2 Nephi 9, he starts talking about the, the coming of the Messiah and how the Messiah will do all these things. Um, and he's going to deliver us from that awful monster, death and hell. And so all of these future prophetic events that Jacob is laying out for the people is meant to kind of replace the historical uh, overview in covenant speeches that you typically see. Um, it's still part of that. But, um, but he's including all the great things that God will do, not just the great things God has done, which I think is kind of a, a unique uh, approach. So um, wh where do we find the stipulations of the covenant? Yeah. So the third section of covenant treaties or covenants or, or treaties is once you have kind of laid out all the reasons why you should enter into this covenant, um, let's talk about what's the requirements and so um, in 2 Nephi 9, starting in verse 23 um, through about verse 26, um, Jacob talks about this. He says, And he commandeth all men that they must repent and be baptized in his name, having perfect faith in, in the Holy One of Israel. And, um, and that he talks about how that God has given a law and that it's important that we now adhere to this law. And so, so this is the, the stipulations, the laws, or the requirements, right? So have faith, be baptized. In other words, enter into this covenant, adhere to the law that God has given. And, um, and then what typically follows in the next step is there are cursings and blessings that are given. Um, and so Jacob starts in verse 27 through 38. He starts enumerating the woes, right? There's 10 woes. I think Jack Welch wrote an article um, about how those 10 woes are similar to the 10 commandments. And it's almost like Jacob is saying, if you enter into this covenant, but you break it, right? if you're going to break the commandments of God, um, there are these woes that will be pronounced upon you. And so he goes through a bunch of woes. Um, and then um, in verse 39, um, he starts enumerating some of the blessings. Um, so 
cursings and blessings usually follow the stipulations in these covenant patterns. And we certainly get that here. So the blessings, um, let's see, verse 39. You want to read that one? Sure. Uh, he says, Oh, my beloved brethren, remember the awfulness and the transgressing against that holy God, and also the awfulness of yielding to the enticings of that cunning one. Remember to be carnally minded is death, and to be spiritually minded is life eternal. So I suppose we're, we're ending the, the cursings part and saying that, you know, woe, you know, woe, 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 it's death. Yep. And then the blessing, you know, if you keep this covenant or uh, abide by this treaty, then you receive life eternal. Yes. Yeah. And, um, and then he mentions, um, I love verse 42, whoso knocketh to him will, be, will he open and the wise and the learned and they that are rich who are puffed up because of their learning and their wisdom and their riches, yea, they are they whom he despiseth. Um, and, you know, so he, he keeps going back and forth between the righteous and the unrighteous, uh, which is, again, kind of this part of that cursing and blessing. But this idea that, that if you knock, if you come before God uh, in the depths of humility, right, he will open it to you. If you don't humble yourself, then he will not open to you, which, which I think kind of plays into this uh, ascension narrative, the idea that, that you're knocking on, the, on heaven's door, in essence, right? And God is uh, going to initiate you into his presence if you have kept your covenant and, um, and done the things that he's asked. Well, and, you know, you and I were talking before the show started about some of the ancient parallels between things that we find um, represented in, uh, you know, God's church versus the ancient world, and how uh, I was at the uh, Ramses the Third Temple in Karnak, and you you walk through that temple. It's not a very big temple, um, you know. F- for those that don't know, Karnak is it's kind of got this hodgepodge of all these different temples, all you know. Um, mixed together so that it becomes one of the largest temple complexes in the world. The, the Ramses Third part of it is, is quite small, but it's, you know, I, 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 maybe you know, it, it's, it seems to me that it's probably very uh, close to the size of Solomon's temple. Um, it, it, it's, uh, you know, it's not that big, but um, I can imagine, um, you know, about the same dimensions. And you have these areas that you're proceeding through so that you have um, sort of an outer temple area that um, with the Egyptians, they would, uh, you'd have sort of the, the lower level priests that would be able to function in those outer courtyard areas, um, you know, where you have. Um, yeah, they call them the, the wab priests, which are the. The pure ones, the purified ones. So they've, they've been washed, anointed. Washed. They've mm-hmm. been. They're clothed yep. in white garments. Yep. Um, their hair has all been cut off. You know? <laughs> so you, you see these, you know, pictures. You know, these guys are all bald and everything. Uh, but that's part of this purification process, right? And um, so then, you know, they would take uh, an initiate who, you know, it, what it is, is it's the king, okay, that he is uh, proceeding through this process where and the priests are, you know, kind of ushering him through as he goes from one section of the temple to the other. And, and so he goes through this initial section with the, uh, the lower um, authority priests and then passes into another section with priests of, of higher authority. And again, what were those priests called? Those are the Hemnetcher. 
here literally translates servant of God, but and it's, in later texts, it's the idea of a prophet. Um, but they're also the high priest of the temples. Right. So, you know, the higher priests then, um, you know, are, are helping this, um, you know, the, 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 the king uh, proceed through the temple until he gets to the area of the Holy of Holies, where only the king or the high priest can enter. And uh, this was explained to us by our tour guide. He was a Muslim man um, who uh, has a master's degree in Egyptology. And so he's explaining the, um, the academic view of how this works. And he says that, you know, the king is brought to the door of the Holy of Holies, where the, um, the, the assistant here, the assistant priest, knocks on that door three times. And then the high priest opens the door and, you know, and asks the priest, you know, uh, you know what, what, what are you doing here? What do you, what do you need? And... and um, and I can't remember exactly how, how he explained it, but, you know, essentially there's this dialogue that goes on where um, they're seeking entrance into the Holy of Holies, and the high priest um, ushers the king into the Holy of Holies, which is um, symbolic of coming into the presence of God. That's where, that's where the Egyptian god would be residing um, it would, you know, they'd bring it out for a festival every, every year or so and parade it around town and then take it back into the Holy of Holies. Um, so, you know, our, our Egyptian tour guide is explaining all of this to us. And, uh, and I thought, you know, John, that sounds very familiar to me. And, you know, and this, is, this is something that was practiced thousands of years ago um, and uh, something that's very familiar to Latter-day Saints today. So there are these kind of ancient um, covenant-making, these ritual um, activities that uh, would take place that we find echoed in, in, in places like the Book of Mormon or in modern temples. Uh, but it's so exciting to me to find these ancient um, corollaries to what we you know, yeah. find in, in Latter-day Scripture. Yeah, I think... Uh, you know, continuing the uh, the pattern that we have in Jacob's speech, um, there's a little ritual that ha- happens at this point, and th- and this is typically what happens in covenants and treaties. Once you have, uh, you know, done the historical overview and you've got the all of the stipulations laid out, and now you've kind of said, okay, here are the cursings if you break this covenant. Here are the blessings if you keep it. Oh, by the way, one of the blessings that we didn't mention, I think, is kind of nice. It's in verse 43. Um, the happiness which is prepared for the saints. So happiness right, is one of these, one of these blessings. Um, once you've once you've done that, then then you have to kind of do a formalization of this covenant. And so, you know, in in modern days, we would just sit down and sign a document. Um, as far as when you enter into agreements or contracts with people, uh, in the ancient world, they would do ritual uh, to kind of enter into covenant relationships. Um, the ritual is is to be a witness to each other that you have entered into, um, you know, said covenant. Um, in this case, uh, Jacob, in verse 44, he says, um, O my beloved brethren, remember my words. Behold, I take off my garments, and I shake them before you. I pray the God of my salvation that he view me with his all-searching eye. Wherefore, you shall know at the last day when all men shall be judged of their works that the God of Israel did witness that I shook your iniquities for my soul and that I stand with brightness before him and am rid of your blood. Um, and, um, and so there's this idea that he's calling upon God to witness. 
I think what he's asking God to witness is that he has officiated properly um, over this and that because the people have now entered into this covenant, that he as the priesthood administrator is now uh, clean from their blood, as he says, I'm rid of your blood. I no longer am responsible for what you do because I have taught you what God expects of you and you have now covenanted to to kind of, you know, stand up on your own to, to do this. And so I think that's a really, you know, beautiful concept of, again, him taking off his garment, shaking them as if to say, I've, I've shaken your blood, your sins, your, um, you know, uh, your mortality off of me because I have done my duty as your priesthood representative in this moment. Well, and I mean, let's just take a, a quick um segue right here to talk about why is it that a priest would have blood on his garments? What's the priest doing in the temple? Well, yeah, if you talk about in the courtyard, you know, they're making sacrifices of animals and in that, that they're, yeah, they're getting, well, they're, and then they're anointing themselves with that blood from the animal whenever they're anointing and getting, getting priests prepared to officiate in the temple. Right. So, I mean, literally, a priest would have blood on his garments. Yep. And, you know, and so um, what Jacob's doing here is he's taking that literal um, activity of the priests where they're doing this work that causes their garments to become bloody, and he's he's drawing this, this connection, he's, he's, he's stating a metaphor, you know, that this blood represents, uh, you know, these sins and that we're going to be, you know, making the garments white, um, that the, uh, you know, they'll be washed, you know, in, in, the, in the blood of the lamb, right? And I mean, so there's all this, you know, the, the, these uh, literal things that are going on that are, that are, figurative representations what happens to our souls and you know what's happening when we sin um so it's you know it's such a cool connection i Mm -hmm. think where he talks about that because it's he doesn't draw out that metaphor very um you know very much he doesn't you know make it too too explicit but the people would have been uh you know in our modern temples we don't we're not sacrificing animals and are not you know not all bloody and so it wouldn't you know wouldn't uh, connect with us in the same way that it would to jacob's listeners where they're familiar with what the priests are doing and Jacob you know identifies himself as as this you know priest and that um, you know he's talking about um, I take off my garments and shake them before you um, and so they can imagine that um, this is uh, you know somebody who would literally have blood on his garments and then you know he's metaphorically shaking off the sins because he's told them about this covenant and the woes and the blessings and, that and the messiah that has come that they are now binding themselves to yeah. right yeah and i love how actually in the book of jacob um the very first chapter when he's gathered everybody together at the temple he basically says something similar in verse uh, chapter 1 verse 19 he says uh, we did magnify our office unto the lord taking upon us the responsibility answering the sins of the people upon our own heads if we did not teach them the word of God with all diligence. Wherefore, by laboring with our might, their blood might not come upon our garments. Otherwise, their blood would come upon our garments, and we would not be found spotless at the last day. So, so this, is a, you know, this is a really serious idea that, um, that those who have the responsibility to to administer the covenant to the people of the world, if they don't do their responsibility, 
then then the sins of that person, the sins of this generation, right, are upon the uh, the priesthood that we're supposed to administer or at least invite people, you know, to partake of the covenant. And, you know, they can choose not to, and at that point, it's, again, their own responsibility. But uh, um, Why do you think that um, Jacob is saying that, that he would be responsible for their sins? You know, we don't usually think of, um, you know, us being responsible for what somebody else does. Uh, why, why do you think Jacob is saying that, that that would be the result in his case? Yeah. Yeah, I think it, it kind of goes even back to what we learned in the Doctrine and Covenants, that parents who don't teach their children, you know, the sin of the children be upon the head of the parents. And, and I think that there's Jacob saying, just as in the same way that parents have responsibility to teach their children to be clean from their sins of their children, so to speak, um, he's basically saying the same thing, that as a priesthood administrator, if if I don't do my duty and teach you the gospel, share with you the word of God, as he says, you know, I, if we did not teach them the word of God with all diligence, then their blood will come upon us. Because, because at that point, then people are sinning, but they're sinning in ignorance. And the only reason why they're ignorant is because someone failed to do their duty. And so it seems as though it's as if to say that sins of ignorance are not the responsibility of the ignorant party, but somebody has to be responsible for them. <laughs> well, so, I mean, you know, maybe another way of saying this is that, that Jacob is, is not literally taking upon himself other people's sins. He's responsible for his own sins or mm-hmm. failings or shortcomings. And the shortcoming in this case would be not doing his duty yep. as a teacher and a priest and um, so that that's where he's responsible is that um, he is failing in that duty that he has. Yeah. Uh, I don't know, because the, the, the wording gets pretty strong, you know, that we have that um, the blood and sins, you know, need to be, as he says, right, that, um, I don't know. There was an interesting passage even in the, the, the book of Matthew that Joseph Smith commented on. Um, you remember that moment when Jesus is talking to the Jews and he says basically that if you kill me and you kill the apostles, he says that the blood of righteous of, of the righteous from Abel down to Zacharias, whom you slew between the, the altar and the temple, he said all the blood of the righteous will be upon your head. And then Joseph Smith commented on that and said that what Jesus meant was that if you reject the gospel, which would allow you to save your ancestors through the ministering of the temple, um, uh, then you'll be guilty. In other, in other words, you'll have to answer for the, their blood, their sins, because you did not participate in redeeming them. I don't know. It's just what well, he's saying, so maybe but, maybe yeah. what it is is that it's, it's the, the you know when we talk about justice and you know satisfying the demands of justice that. If you have failed to do something which results in some injustice, that you're responsible for that, right? Yeah, yeah. And so in this case, what we're saying is that a failure to teach proper principles, yeah. you know, if it, to the extent that results in injustice being done, yeah. you're responsible for that. Now, yeah. the injustice in this case that's being done is people are sinning, yeah. you know, and the reason they're sinning is because you haven't taught them. Yeah. And so, again, there's, there's, you know, the responsibility is yours. For, you know, it's a shortcoming of yours yeah. that you have, that you've engaged in. Uh, but in this case, 
the shortcoming results in other people sinning. Yeah. Um, so you're not really, you know, it's not like you're taking upon yourself their sins, but you have a responsibility for what you've done and the harm that results from that. Yeah. I don't know. That yeah. <laughs> to me that that makes more sense than saying, you know, that um, you know, everybody you have to else is, for them. Mm-hmm. You know that yeah. I, I don't know. It's it's something I'm going to have to think more about, but um, it, it's a it's an interesting uh, turn of phrase yeah. and something that turns up more than once. Yeah, Lehi says it to his grandkids, remember? He blesses them. He says that if you don't follow the rules or commandments of the Lord, then I take God's cursing off of you and put it on the heads of your parents because they didn't teach you. Yeah. That kind of idea. Yeah. So. Well, let me, let me talk to you about this idea of shaking the blood off and, and the connection this has maybe to dust. And, mm. you know, um, Grant, Brant Gardner uh, draws this connection uh, that I think so interesting. This is in his um, second witness commentary on the Book of Mormon. And let me just read this because this is kind of packed with information. He said, by New Testament times, the symbol of shaking dust off the feet had become intertwined with purity laws. The simple case of dust avoidance dealt with foreign dust as opposed to the dust of Israel. Rabbinic texts specifically note that the dust of foreign nations is defiling, while it is probable that the basic understanding was simply that the insider-outsider boundaries uh, the explanation suggested that the foreign dust might come from foreign high places or perhaps from sepulchers, which were defiling because they were associated with the dead. As Molina and Rohrbaugh pointed out, purity rules that distinguish between the inside and outside are replications of rules that distinguish in-group from out-group, thus keeping the boundaries between the groups ever before the awareness of those observing the purity rules. The idea that the dust of foreign lands may be polluting reinforces the boundaries between Israel and these other countries. Therefore, when the dust is shaken from the shoes, the one performing the action is declaring that the location is foreign. When applied to a household, as in Matthew 10:14, it indicates that the household is to be treated as Gentiles. The action symbolically removes the location from inside Yahweh's protection to a status of being outside Yahweh's covenant land. It is particularly important that it is the dust of the feet that is shaken. So, you know, Brant Gardner is drawing a connection here between, you know, the shaking off of the blood off of the garments and shaking dust off. Uh, we, we hear about, you know, the idea of, of, you know, like dusting off your shoes, you mm-hmm. know. And I think that's interesting in this context because Jacob talks a lot about um, Israel yep. and about Gentiles and about entering into, you know, the covenant, you know, with Israel, becoming part of that people. And so I think that's interesting, you know, to the extent that shaking off the dust would signify that you're not part of this people. Mm. Um, you know, that that's maybe you haven't kept the covenant. You have, you, you've broken the treaty, yep. you know. Yeah, uh, this goes back to actually Second Nephi 6 because um, here he quotes Isaiah again. Kings shall be thy nursing fathers, their queens thy nursing mothers. They shall bow down to thee with their faces towards the earth and lick up the dust of thy feet. And, and you think, okay, well. Which verse is that again? That's Second Nephi 6, 7. Um, and then Jacob actually tells us what this means because at first it sounds like benevolence, right? You got a king, the, the Gentile kings and queens are nursing and, and helping you. But then he says that they, they put their faces towards the earth and they lick up the dust of your feet. But then Jacob says later, um, verse 12 of 2 Nephi 6, Blessed are the Gentiles, they of whom the prophet have, has written, For behold, if it so be that they shall repent and fight not against Zion, 
and do not unite themselves to the great and abominable church, they shall be saved. But they that fight, verse 13, they that fight against Zion and the covenant people of the Lord shall lick up the dust of their feet. So it's the Gentiles who fight. And, and this is good ancient Near Eastern curse imagery. I mean, it all goes, goes like the Garden of Eden. When God curses Lucifer, he's crawling upon his belly, eating dust. Right? But when you, when you look at a serpent, the way they eat dust is they're licking right, with their tongue. And, and so the idea of licking or eating dust is this idea that you are consuming death, right? Because you're a death eater, um, because you are partaking of dust, which actually has no value for bringing forth life because dust is arid, right? And, um, and so there's depictions in, in ancient Egypt of people like crawling on their belly with their, their legs kind of cocked underneath them as they kind of crawl forward, but their faces towards the ground and it's, a, it's the image of someone who is cursed before the king versus someone who's standing before a king um, who then is in a favored position. And so, um, so, yeah, I think that eating or licking dust off the feet or shaking the dust off your feet or shaking the blood from your garment is all kind of part of this curse imagery um, that, that, again, that um, if you keep the covenants, you'll be blessed. Otherwise, you're like this dust being cast off or mm. eaten. <laughs> yeah, wow, yeah, fascinating. So um, the final part of this um, uh, covenant and treaty structure then is the recording of the contract. Yep. Uh, you know, where do we find that in these verses? So, I mean, obviously um, it's recorded because we actually have it <laughs> in the okay. scripture. So somebody wrote this whole ceremony down. Um, so we know it was recorded. Um, but um, unlike King Benjamin's speech, where at the end of his speech, he actually had everybody's names written down and they, they took... Well, and, he, and, and they, they sent it out to, you know, to read to people, yes, right? right. So they actually have it all recorded and names of the people taken. You know, we don't get that in this moment. Again, because Nephi's not given us a lot of the historical or the narrative context of what's the sermon's, how it's being given. But he does talk about in chapter 9, verse 52, he says, Behold, my beloved brethren... Remember the words of your God. Pray unto him continually by day. Give thanks unto his holy name by night. And, and so this idea of um, remembering right, is, is a really important part as it comes to, as it, you know, that's the whole purpose of recording a contract is so that both parties remember what this deal was all about. And, um, and so the Book of Mormon is all about helping us to remember what great things God has done and to remember the covenants that the Lord has made with our fathers. And, um, and so I think this is just another example, you know, of that. Um, I think that um, one last thing I wanted to kind of highlight is um, when you go to 2 Nephi chapter 10, which is the last, it's the second day of his sermon. Um, but I really find it kind of powerful the way that Jacob kind of concludes. He's, he's taking his people on a little journey. Again, I think uh, Schuyler's paper about how this is kind of an ascension is, is a good um, way of looking at it. He's taking them on a, on a journey of um, helping them see that the Savior is going to come, but then he tells them that they're going to reject him and that the house of Israel is going to become scattered. And then he talks about how the Gentiles are going to kind of take over. So it's the day of the Gentiles are going to 
uh, it's going to rise up. But then toward the end of the day of the Gentiles, the Lord is going to remember his people, remember his covenant. He's going to gather Israel home, and then he's going to restore them back to their lands and to their priesthood as, as he promised them when he made the covenant in the first place. Um, and the way that chapter 10 frames this, I think, is really interesting. It's, I, don't, I don't find it most anywhere else in the, in, the New, in the Book of Mormon, except I think there's a couple of passages the Savior does in 3 Nephi. But in verse 2, he says, Behold, the promises, so speaking of the, the covenant promises that God has made, the co- promises which we have obtained are promises unto us according to the flesh. That phrase, according to the flesh, is really significant because he repeats it over and over again. Verse 7, I am Christ, and um, they that believe in me, uh, then have I covenanted with their fathers that they shall be restored in the flesh upon the earth unto the lands of their inheritances. And then skipping down to verse 15, Wherefore, for this cause, that my covenants may be fulfilled, which I have made unto the children of men, that I will do unto them while they are in the flesh, I must needs destroy the secret works of darkness and of murders and abominations. Um, Verse 17, For I will fulfill my promises, which I have made unto the children of men, that I will do unto them while they are in the flesh. Over and over again, Jacob keeps talking about this idea that God is going to do his work to us. He's going to fulfill all the promises of the covenant while we are in the flesh. Now that raises all kinds of questions because the promises of the covenant, as we learn from section 132, we learn from Abraham's covenants, we learn from our modern temples, the promises of the covenant are that, that God's people are going to be given dominion or authority or kingly and queenly power. They're going to become kings and queens, priests and priestesses. That's one part of the covenant. The other part is that they're going to be given a kingdom or land, and God literally gives out land in the scriptures as part of this covenant relationship, and he's giving them a piece of the earth. And the, and the reason why this is significant is because the earth is going to become a celestial kingdom. And so if you actually possess land on the earth, then you've got a piece of the celestial kingdom. And so the Lord is basically saying to you, you have a home in the celestial kingdom. Here's some land. And... Um, and so they're going to get land, they're going to get their priesthood or their kingly royal authority, and, um, and then he promises that they will have children who will be their heirs of these things. And these promises are not just for eternity, but he says for time and eternity. Section 132 verse 19 says that, right? And time and eternity, I think, is the, the, the clincher here. Because we oftentimes think in the modern day, we just think about eternity, but the Lord is saying all of these blessings will be yours in time, or in the way the, the Book of Mormon is saying it, it'll be yours while you're in the flesh. So that becomes problematic because a lot of people live and die not being kings and queens, not having their kingdom, and not having children because they're barren or something like that. So, so how does God fulfill all of his promises to us while we are in the flesh if people die without having received those promises? And I think the answer, to be short, is this is what the millennium is all about. This is why 
the early saints were millennialists, right? They thought about the millennium so much uh, because they recognized that the millennial day is the day that the Savior comes and he restores all things. He, he, he restores Israel to her rightful kingdoms and lands, and he makes of his people the kings and queens as they've been covenanted to do. And, and if you're dead, you rise up again, and you receive all of those blessings while the earth is still in its mortal probation. Well, Joseph Smith talked about, you know, you lose a child, um, you know, during the millennium you have the opportunity to raise that yeah. child to adulthood. Right, so this idea that you get to have all the experiences that you missed out on in the millennial day, he's going to wipe away every tear. And, and that allows you to experience immortality what it would have been like. And then it'll roll on to eternity after that. And so I think that's just a beautiful witness that God remembers his covenants, that he will fulfill them in every person's life, not just in eternity, but in time and eternity. Hmm. So awesome. I think, well, awesome. I, I love the way that you've uh, been able to draw on you know, ancient practices uh, and overlay them with what's going on here in the Book of Mormon that, you know, it demonstrates again that, that you know, th- these are real people that uh, lived in uh, time in a real place. Uh, and, you know, it helps these uh, verses come to life. Uh, so in our last, uh, we've got, uh, you know, somewhere seven or eight minutes left. Um, let's hit some of the big um, themes, big issues in, in, in these chapters. One of them is this concept of, uh, you know, an infinite atonement. Mm-hmm. In uh, chapter 9, verse 7, that's um, a phrase that we hear quite a bit. We don't, you know, we don't talk a lot about what that means. We, we, we talk about how the atonement is infinite. Um, I'm not sure I know exactly what it means, <laughs> but, um, but there are some ideas I've got. Uh, so, wherefore, it must needs be an infinite atonement. Save, it should be an infinite atonement. This corruption could not put on incorruption. So, unless this is infinite, uh, we're doomed. And so, what do you think it means to say that this is an infinite atonement? Probably could be a couple of things. Um, I really love Alma 34 on this point, that um, that that it can't it can't just be a quid pro quo atonement. In other words, it can't be just that, that Jesus suffers the same amount of all the combined sins of the world. Um, his atonement has to go, his, the sufferings that he has to endure has to go beyond and, and again, has to be infinite in the sense that it is, it is not calculable. Well, you know, this this maybe going to rankle some people. <laughs> you know, people talk about how um, they feel like that. Uh, you know, that Christ has atoned for them in the sense that every sin that they've committed, that you know, Christ shed some drop of blood. You know, for like you know, so there's like this one one to one one to one relationship, and um, and to me, it sounds like if you know, if it's going to be an infinite atonement that we can't just count up the sins and say, you know, Christ suffered, you know, X amount because this was how many sins there were, that rather there's this infinite amount so that it really doesn't matter how much you sin. It's all covered, yeah. you know, and it's not like, you know, hey, I've missed that sin, so sorry, you're out of luck because Christ didn't suffer for that one. It's, it's that he suffered so much, and it doesn't matter if you accept it or not. So, so he's suffering for people who don't even accept 
his atonement, you know, that, that anybody is free to accept his sacrifice. Um, you know, and this is, this is a theological debate. There are some people that literally will say that he only suffered for those people who are saved, mm-hmm. and that, you know, God, God decides who's he going to save, and then, and then he suffers for those people. That's not an infinite atonement. That's very finite, you know. We can say there's this number of people. Um, there, also, there are not a certain number of sins that he suffered for, because that would be a finite atonement, Right. Now, maybe we're talking about infinite in a different way. I mean, one, one way in which this is infinite is that um, Christ lived forever, right? That he, there's no beginning and no end. He, he's the one that, that uh, atoned for us, and so it's infinite in, yeah, in it's that no, sense. It's no mortal, but, but a God who is doing this. Right, yeah. And, yeah. and that he um, brings immortality to us. It's, you know, it's infinite in that sense, that um, it makes it possible for us to overcome sin and death. All of us will live forever because of the atonement. Um, it, you know, its its influence extends to all of God's creations. Um, you know, so maybe it's it's infinite in that sense. Um, so you know, there are a number of different ways that we could say that it's infinite. But if it's not infinite, if it's not infinite in all of those ways, uh, you know, then it's not going to have full force and effect. Um, so. You know, that, that phrase, you know, infinite atonement turns up a number of times. That, you know, like you say, it turns up in, um, uh, in, in Alma. Um, you know, does, does it? Let me see. We've got Alma 34. Alma 34 um, for it's expedient that atonement should be made, um, or else all mankind should be lost. Uh, well, I'll take your word for it. I'm not seeing where it says infinite. But, oh, there we go, 14. Uh the last sacrifice will be the Son of God, yea, infinite and eternal. Um, so that seems to be suggesting that, um, that it's Jesus Christ that's infinite. Verse 12, which is short of an infinite atonement, which will suffice for the sins of the world. Yeah, nothing which is short, right? Nothing which, yeah. yeah, so that seems to be suggesting that the, uh, the, the sense in which it's infinite is that it, it's uh, for all sins. Um, so anyway, uh, yeah, the, the important, important concept. Uh, wanted to make sure we touched on that. Um, now, let's see. Uh, one of the other concepts that I think that uh, is, is a, a, a big one is um, in verse 20 of chapter 9, it talks about the, how great the holiness of our God, for he knoweth all things and there is not anything save he knoweth it. And so this raises this issue, you know, what does it mean to say God knows everything? Mm. Um, some people get uh, really upset about this because it seems to suggest that we don't have free agency. Um, so if he knows everything that we're going to do, for example, that, um, that maybe that uh, makes it so that we don't have a choice. Um, now, there are different, you know, different ways of of approaching that, you know, maybe there's an infinite number of possibilities of choices, right? And then he knows, you know, all of those different possibilities. So we're still free to choose different options, but that God has, um, you know, accounted for all of those different varieties of things. Another way I look at it is, you know, the fact that I know, you know, well, to the extent we can know um, history, uh, you know, I can read in a book what happened, but the fact that I can see what happened in the past doesn't mean I caused it to happen. And that the scriptures talk about, you know, past, present, future is all, you know, 
all present before God, right? And so that maybe he's, you know, operating in a different dimension. Some people that get caught up in this seem to be uh, limiting God to Newtonian physics, you know, to a, a Newtonian universe. And um, it seems to me that we don't have to do that, that, you know, maybe there's a different way of, of looking at this where God is able to, you know, transcend our dimension and, and can see past, present, and future. And maybe, like the scriptures say, time is measured only unto man. Um, so that's, that, you know, maybe another way of, of looking at that. Um, but then the other, the other thing that I think worries people about this is um, that if, uh, you know, God knows everything, you know, does that mean that uh, we're going to be really bored, you know, <laughs> in the next life because, you know, there's just nothing left no to surprises. learn. <laughs> no surprises. No, yeah. Um, you know, nothing to do. Uh, you know, uh, it, you know, doesn't, isn't there something left? Isn't there some, you know, exploring new worlds, reaching out to new civilizations, <laughs> boldly going where no God has gone before? <laughs> and um, there, are, there are plenty of um, comments from general authorities and from prophets to, to the extent that, no, God really does know everything. Um, and it's, there's an important theological reason for that. In the lectures on faith, it says, if it were not for the idea existing in the minds of men that God has all knowledge, it would be impossible for them to exercise faith in him. Yeah. The idea is, is that if God, if there, you know, he's an infinite being, right? So you've got this infinite amount of time, and if he's learning one new thing every 10 billion years, he's infinitely ignorant, right? Because there's an infinite number of things he doesn't know. And so, uh, you know, in order to have faith in him, we need to have confidence uh, that uh, he's got it right, that he's not going to be surprised by something at some point, um, and that this is all going to work. And so, um, you know, it's, it's uh, well, I, I love the way Elder Maxwell puts this. He says, those who try to qualify God's omniscience fail to understand that he has no need to avoid ennui by learning new things. Because God's love is also perfect, there is in fact divine delight in that one eternal round, which to us seems to be all routine and repetition. God derives his great and continuing joy and glory by increasing and advancing his creations, and not from new intellectual experiences. There is a vast difference, therefore, between an omniscient God and the false notion that God is on some sort of postdoctoral fellowship, <laughs> still searching for additional key truths and vital data. Were the latter so, God might at any moment discover some new truth not previously known to him that would restructure, diminish, or undercut certain truths previously known by him. Prophecy would be mere prediction. Planning, assumptions pertaining to our redemption would need to be revised. Fortunately for us, however, his plan of salvation is constantly underway, not constantly under revision. So it's important to know God is uh, infinite, eternal, and he knoweth all things. There is not anything save he knoweth it. Um, grateful for this uh, section here, uh, you know, this, this, this uh, doctrine, um, this sermon given by Jacob. Uh, we'll, we'll be able to study a lot more from Jacob in, uh, in his own book. Uh, he's just such a fantastic uh, speaker. You know, the, the, these uh, sermons are just are beautiful. And, uh, and John, thanks so much for your insights about how this ties to ancient practices. I think it really helps to, uh, to bring this, uh, this whole section alive. Yeah, yeah, loved it. So uh, thanks for joining us this evening on uh, the Interpreted Radio Show. Join us again next time on K-Talk Radio.